it was clear that they were always there to protect the right wing um, against the left wing. All they wanted to do is criminalize me, right? Uh, criminally profile me. That's what they do. Criminalize black people, yeah? yeah. Hey, it's Rifka Brown here, reporter and commissioning editor for Navarra Media. I'm standing in for James on this episode of Navarra FM to give you something a little different, a little more experimental perhaps. Like many of you, we at Navarra have been thinking a lot about the police lately. Tiski has kept a close eye on developments in the Kill the Bill movement, from police brutality at the Sarah Everard vigil on Clapham Common, to the Bristol uprisings that have thrust the city into the national spotlight. In the articles team where I work, we've been publishing a ton of interesting responses to this abolitionist surge. My favourites include Sam Knight's close look at how the police lobby dreamt up the police crime sentencing and courts bill, and Sandeep Sandhu's history of the taser. Here on FM, James dug deep into the theory of policing in his recent interview with Professor Mark Neoclius. Mark made a number of points in that episode, many of which will be relevant to today's episode. Perhaps the most pertinent is his insistence that we need to stop talking about the police and start talking about policing, the tentacles of police power that creep into everything from parking wardens to food standards agencies. All of the institutions concerned with order in the most general sense uh, that go under different terms, welfare or um, public health and so forth, They're all closely connected with what now count as the professional police force. They work incredibly closely hand in hand with the professional police forces. If you think about the way insurance companies operate or football clubs operate, they're all operating in very, very close tandem with professional police forces to the point at which you might want to say, well, actually, they can't actually function without engaging in precisely the things that police forces insist that they should be engaging with. At one point, Mark gets into the reasons for police impunity and why behaviour that's criminalised in the general population is licensed in cops. There are all sorts of interesting concepts that one encounters when one thinks about police that really requires broader thinking about, uh, about sovereignty and sovereign power. I'll give you an example, which is the idea of immunity. The idea of police immunity from prosecution for certain acts carried out by police officers in the line of their their duty. Um, And this is a major, major problem, okay, because it's the fundamental reason that so many police killings, police acts of violence, police torture go unpunished, right, because police are granted immunity for prosecution. Towards the end of the episode, Mark made an argument I didn't see coming. We actually do need police, he said. At least until we dismantle the structures of capital that require police protection. The difference, I think, with police abolition as opposed to police defunding, you know, it's amazing to hear, but there's a sense in which, you know, it's 
it's whatever it is, 200 years too early or something. Well, because in terms of what it would mean to, to abolish police is, you know, we're not going to have the same society that we have right now without police, right? I don't mean that as in we need police. I mean, what I mean by that is this society right now needs police. What we have to hope for is that we can create a society that does not require this thing called policing, right? That's the, that's the beauty of that police abolition slogan. What I want to give you today is a hybrid of the kind of things we usually do here at Navarra. I'm going to introduce you to two people I've interviewed in the course of my reporting, people whose stories I think contain a lot of the ideas about policing we've been chewing on. And then I'm going to invite two very smart people to help me unpack those ideas. The first person I'm going to introduce you to is a man called Judah, who, despite his own extreme experiences of racist policing, attempted to help the force change. His story, aspects of which are so powerfully ironic they're hard to believe, expose familiar tensions between liberal versus radical solutions to the problem of policing. The second is a woman called B, a victim of the spy cops, a black spy cop in fact. B is in the process of seeking justice from the undercover policing inquiry, while the police seek to expand their powers to repeat history, but worse. B's story raises questions about the intertwinement of state and gendered violence, as well as the state's ability to police itself. Finally, I'm going to invite two academics, Annie Ololoku-Tariba and Dr. Adam Elliott Cooper, to look at that reporting through the lens of political theory. We'll talk about whether it's possible to reform an institution that, as Adam puts it, is colonially constituted, about whether violence is justified given, as Annie says, peace without justice is just the perfection of oppression, and whether America has too much influence on our movements. If you're a regular FM listener, you might at this point be a little like, this isn't what I signed up for. In the words of Ira Glass, stay with us. There are some people I'd like you to meet. The first is Judah Adumbi. Judah is a 60-something black guy. He has long dreads, a thick Jamaican accent, though the recording we got of it is pretty rough, just a heads up, and a not insignificant degree of local celebrity in Bristol. I met Judah when I was working on a report we ended up calling What Happened to the Bristol Police, published last month. Judah found the question, which spoke to an often made assumption that Avon and Somerset are somehow more permissive than other forces, a bit of a joke. experience doesn't change much, to be honest, because my early experience was all about racist police. Um... Judah has been politically active in Bristol for most of his life. He remembers vividly the 1980 uprising triggered when the police raided the Black and White Cafe, a hangout popular with the African-Caribbean community in St. Paul's, Bristol. Calling it a raid is an understatement, really. To hear Judah tell it, it was something closer to a police riot. I went across Governor Road by the Black and White Cafe, and I'm telling you, I've never seen so many police all throughout my life gather together. Until I went out to um, and going over that particular day. The raid precipitated one of the biggest confrontations between black Britons and the police in this country's history and became a catalyst for the better known riot that happened in Brixton the following year. Of course, this wasn't an isolated incident in Bristol. 
In fact, Judah describes it as a pressure cooker exploding. That's just the rate of the black and white cafe which said on Saturday, right? It's a com- combination of um, a hell of a lot of suffering that we have been through um, previous to 1980. 1980 um, just um, ignited the fumes, the so to speak. The 60s and 70s were not good years to be black in Bristol. Judah remembers the cops terrorising him and his friends. Everything from winding them up on their way home from school to planting drugs on them. And so up until 1980, uh, we have got 11 years here, and 11 years was a constant suffering of the hands of the police from people living in St. Paul in particular. That's how he describes the period leading up to 1980. Interestingly, it was after the riot that Judah's attitude to the police began to shift. Perhaps it was the police liaison officers he began seeing coming along to community meetings. Maybe it was the money that the Thatcher government would pump into poor neighbourhoods like St Paul's. Either way, Judah went from wanting nothing to do with the cops to thinking, hey, maybe I can work with these guys. Maybe I can help them do better. One officer in particular tipped the scales for Judah. There was a situation in um, St. Paul's when I'm a particular caretaker friend of mine. His name is Evan Bangeberry. He was murdered out there. We had a police um, commander who was um, on the case and he had made um, every, every effort to address that particular murder because that murder was, uh, was carried out by someone. Were not from well, some people were not from Bristol and so forth, and they were under some um, influence would have would have passed. He, um, the chap by the name of uh, um, Commander Warren David Warren, he had um, make every effort to address that um, particular murder, and that um, sent a signal to me say yes, you got one or two um, policemen who really have um, care for our community. So by now it's the late 90s, and Judah is persuaded, along with a couple of other leaders of Bristol's African-Caribbean community, to set up what they called an independent advisory group to counsel Avon and Somerset on its race relations. Judah says the group occupied this ambivalent position towards the police. People, some people may turn that as friends, but the actual fact is we were critical friends of the police. Right? When they do something which... Uh, when they do something which um, needs recognizing, yes, we hold our hands up and give them praise. But when they break the rules, we, um, yes, we dealt with that matter um, properly. Today, Judah seems quite conflicted about having volunteered to be on the IIG. In fact, he describes it as a form of self-sacrifice. And that's, that's what it, um, inspired me to, um, you know, <laughs> sacrifice myself so to speak, in order to ensure that my community have a much better um, um, life expectancy in every way that is, is, is possible. When we spoke, I asked Judah whether part of the reason he was so willing to work with the police was because, effectively, he already was. He'd been an officer in the local authority in Bristol for years by the time he joined the IAG. Judah pushed back quite hard at this suggestion – Though he did say his job gave him a better understanding of how the police worked. To me, become a hell of a lot more wiser in the way which I dealt with them. Judah remained on the IAG for about nine years, then quit. 
for a couple of reasons. The first was that the police were stuffing the group with yes men, or so he saw it. The second was they kept transferring out senior officers who Judah felt genuinely wanted to work with the black community. Then things got weird. In 2017, about eight years after Judah left the IAG, he was walking up to his front door when a pair of police officers questioned who he was. They later claimed to have mistaken him for another guy, which is a pretty bold claim if you ask me, given how locally well-known and instantly recognisable Judah is. He refuses to tell them, by this point he's pretty familiar with his rights, and as a result gets tasered in the face. Have you ever um, listened to a meat being swinged? That's the, the feeling I have. You put some meat in some hot oil and listen to where it's done, and yes, that's what... Um, the, the feeling I had all the time when the tears are hit me out there, so I said, I know if it was my God, I didn't know where I would be alive. Judah can't believe what's happening, and to him, of all people. The chap who had um, done the video, um, they were across the road from me, tried to explain to them that I'm going to my home, leave me alone, I'm going to go to my home, I'm a good bloke and so forth, and they didn't want to know that. All they wanted to do is criminalise me. Right, uh, criminally profile me when they wanted to know my name and so forth and so forth. That's what they do. Criminalize black people, you understand? It was at this point, I reckon, that Judah realized that however close he got to the police, however much of a model minority he was, he was still a black man. At some point, Judah's shock turned to anger. He launched a campaign, Justice for Judah, to pursue legal action against Avon and Somerset police. When the criminal trial produced no convictions, he entered civil proceedings, which collapsed and bankrupted him. What fascinates me is what Judah's views on the police are today. Someone brought up as an abolitionist, told repeatedly by his elders not to trust the police, that they didn't need the police, and despite this tried to help the police and got tasered for his trouble. This is what he says when I ask him whether he thinks we need the police now. At the moment, yes, we do need, we do need them to stop these sort of negative things that are happening on occasion. But they need to be honest. They need to be um, treating them people with uh, the same respect as they would expect, expect to be treated as. Whether um, you are black, white, um, from the subcontinent, it makes no difference. What Judah wants isn't abolition, but reform. And how do we achieve that? Changing recruitment practices. Once you are able to um, eliminate those people, bring them away from the police force. He means the bad apples. Bring new people into the police force. New young people who have got um, a different um, perspective on life. I think, um, you know, the the need would be be there to uh, amend the recruiting process and so forth. Judah presents a conundrum for the abolitionist. Someone whose lived experiences of police brutality have not dimmed their faith in the institution of policing, who despite everything, believes in good cops and bad cops and most of all in cops and their ability to prevent what he calls anarchy and unruliness. I don't totally understand how this is possible. I'm hoping Annie and Adam will help me with that. Now I'd like you to hold Judah in your mind and turn your attention to our second subject, B. So first thing, B isn't her real name. Like many of the women participating in the undercover policing inquiry, she uses a pseudonym. 
Bee was raised in 1960s Oxford by two born-again Christians. Perhaps most interesting about her family, though, was that her grandpa was a Northern Irish police officer, and exactly what you'd expect of one. It's God, then the Queen, then your country. Those are your priorities in life. Like many white middle-class Britons, Bee grew up to think of the police as benevolent protectors of her community. Uh, They used to come round to school to give us road safety talks, Tufty Club and all that. You know, they helped us cross cross the road. As a teenager, though, Bee lost her faith in Christianity, in the state. At 16, she left the church and joined the Worker Socialist League, then emigrated to Italy to join Rifondazione Comunista. But it wasn't until Bee came back to England in her 20s and went on anti-fascist league marches that she really saw what the police were capable of. The protests in, uh, against the BNP in Welling, which was sort of at the time that I was with the undercover officer who deceived me into a relationship, uh, where the amount of, of violence was was so excessive. And uh, I... I ended up running running away and jumping over a wall, actually, rather than getting trampled by uh, a police horse, but not blaming the horses. Um, it was clear that they were always there to protect the right wing um, against the left wing. What's interesting is that, like Judah, B finds herself later in life in a position of working with the police. Having grown up wanting to be a probation officer, she ends up in mental health social work, where she is starkly confronted by racist policing. When you ask the police to to come along, there was never any control. So sometimes they turn up with two vans full of really young riot cops, like really loaded up with um, equipment and looking terrifying just because the, the person we were going to, very often it was young black men. Um, which we, we know there's over-feasting in that, uh, in that area and that there's over-sectioning of young black men um, just because somebody had been, you know, picked up with a knife as a teenager or something like that, you know, but way over the top. And that felt uncomfortable. Still, B is an agent of the state at this point and the granddaughter of a policeman, which leaves her with this residual loyalty to the police that comes out in a lot of her political interactions. I was a, a, a little bit in conflict with the SWP uh, initially about the police. Uh, it was one of the few times that I spoke up, actually, was uh, in in defence of, I think it was prison officers who were going on strike and I remember having discussion about whether we should support prison officers on, on strike and the um, and the feeling was well no they're just agents of the state and we we shouldn't be seen to support them any way that we would if the police went on strike which I know the police can't go on strike my uh, argument was so they're working class people in trade, trade organizations like all the rest of us. It's at one of these SWP meetings in the late 80s that B meets Bobby He's black, like her ex, who she still isn't over. He tells her he has two mixed-race kids, exactly the same age as hers. She falls for him instantly. Bobby and Bee dated for about a year, then Bobby kind of disappeared. He later sent a letter from Egypt giving a vague explanation of why he'd had to leave. Bee is upset, a bit confused, but eventually forgets about it. 30 years later, she gets an unexpected reminder. I was actually in, in in Brighton at a party with uh, um, a, a a lot of of my 
um, old comrades from the SWP, actually, who all would have um, known Bobby. And uh, my uh, my wife had, had a friend who'd gone around to feed the cat and said this, this guy had come around with a letter, which he wouldn't give to her and said that he needed to speak to me personally. And I had not long before been arrested in, in one of the XR rebellions. So I assumed it might be some kind of warrant for that. So I called him, I called him up and he said, sorry, so I have to tell you I'm from the undercover police investigation that your ex-boyfriend um, was a police officer. And I said, was that Bobby? And you straight away who he must be talking about. Bobby, it turns out, was one of dozens of officers who spied on over a thousand groups between 1968 and the early 2000s. Like Judah, B is now going down an official route to seek justice from the police. Unlike Judah, she's not hopeful about the police's capacity to change. I can't really talk about the mediation, but only to um, to say that this particular officer seemed on the surface to be sympathetic and to say it was wrong, it shouldn't have happened. But at the same time, you know, we're very aware of the fact that the spy cops bill and in the um, police crime sentences and courts bill, that, that kind of activity is being sanctified, really. I asked B what her family made of Bobby. It seems like Judah, they resolved their cognitive dissonance by distinguishing good eggs from bad. My my mum's attitude is, well, it wasn't like that in your grandfather's day. He would be turning in his grave. And I do believe he would be turning in his grave. I don't, you know, I'm the kind of undercover thing that my mum says he wouldn't have approved of that. Interestingly, this still leads her to make the same distinction her family does between the big bad Met Police who spied on her and the harmless local forces that send officers into schools that employed her grandfather. I think that that his concerns were very much local um, and not on the state level. He was a you know he was a rural police officer. He'd have been like the only person who he was based in a village, and he and he would just have been. Yeah, very much um, locally based. I don't think we'd have had much um, knowledge or much orders, probably even from on a national level. You know, that was that, that's different being part from being part of the Met, obviously, where you are. Um, you know, it is a much more politicised unit and taking orders on a um, from the government and so on. When I pressed beyond this, she reflected that actually, perhaps there's no such thing as a harmless cop. I'm not saying he was he was altogether good. There was an incident uh, where he found two men doing something on a style that uh, I can't remember what words he used, but you know, he said that, that he, he was he was enforcing it. Uh, yeah, what I would see as homophobia as well, but what is homophobia? Throughout our conversation, I kept wondering what B's unionist grandfather arresting gay men on styles would have made of his activist granddaughter living with her wife in the Republic of Ireland. I'm aware I'm doing a lot of identifying interesting strands here and not a lot of tying them together. That's because I outsourced the strand tying to two very smart people I know. My name is Adam Elliott Cooper. I'm a sociologist based at the University of Greenwich and I'm author of Black Resistance to British Policing. My name is Annie Olaloku Tariba. I'm an independent researcher based in London. I work on the histories of colonisation, national liberation and race. 
I put to Annie and Adam some of the thorniest questions that I felt B and Judah posed. Here's the result. So B says that one of the reasons she wasn't so suspicious of Bobby being a spy was because she expected that police spies would be a guy in a big raincoat, not her actual boyfriend. I think that assumption says something about how we understand policing as an institution rather than as a nebulous force that comes into our lives in all sorts of ways, ways that implicated B herself and Judah, obviously, as these agents of the state, a social worker, a local authority officer. I'm interested in how we as abolitionists shift away from thinking about an end to the police towards an end to policing. So I think there's two aspects here. Um, One aspect which is really interesting and I think underexplored is, um, I guess we have historical examples of things like COINTELPRO um, in the US, which was essentially the FBI's mounted war against the black radical movement and other radical movements at the time, which infiltrated to incredibly high levels, major black organizations. Um, and I do think there's a sense in which we haven't fully contended with the um, that aspect of the state's ability to operate covertly within radical movements um, and the extent to which the state is willing to go. And I think that conversation was opened up somewhat by the Spy Cops Bill and just thinking about what the state saw it necessary to license people to do in service of extinguishing radical politics. I think the other side of that is in focusing on the police as institutions um, what we've also kind of missed is the way in which um, various different statutory duties which are increasingly being imposed if we think about prevent the statutory duties being imposed on doctors on teachers to report on students um, have conscripted various elements of the public sector into the state project and into the project of policing and so I think there's two ways that we move beyond it. I think one is connecting more of the dots. There are so many things that we don't fall within the conversation around policing, immigration and borders being a really key part of that. And then I think the second way we kind of move beyond that is also in terms of broadening our horizons of what what other world could be possible. Um, I think people can't think beyond the idea of a deterrent Um, but also can't think beyond defining their own moral goodness in relation to the moral badness of other people. And I think that's something that the left has to think through really, uh, really carefully. I think think I'm unsurprised, really, that uh, B didn't necessarily consider spying, police spying, to be something which could affect her directly and be um, presented in a way that was so mundane, but also in a way that was so intimate it's difficult for us to always be second-guessing people that we have intimate relationships with and people we have friendships with um, as people who may actually um, uh, be police spies. And I remember working at the monitoring group when the revelations by um, a man who was, his undercover name was Peter Black, his real name was Peter Francis, and these revelations were first um, made public. um, And we found out that many people in the monitoring group had been infiltrated and spied on at the various campaigns that that they'd been a part of for a number of decades. And it was horrendous for the atmosphere in the office. It was a really horrible working environment because it breeds paranoia in a way that can be very destructive. And one thing, one of the things movements of resistance need in order to function is trust. But what I will say is that I think it's really crucial is that this spy cops campaign 
has enabled us really to better understand infiltration, spying and surveillance in ways that we've never been able to understand them before. And I think paying as much attention as we can to all of the revelations coming out of this inquiry can better equip us for doing this really crucial work to maintain the integrity of our organisations. I wonder whether the flip side to that of liberation struggles requiring trust uh, is capitalist systems requiring mistrust, this kind of deep misanthropy at their heart, a sense that other people are out to get us. And if we don't protect ourselves as an in-group, others will take advantage of that. I sort of wonder whether the spy cops, the design of that program wasn't necessarily just to gather intelligence on movements, um, but actually just to breed the kind of mistrust and misanthropy on which capitalism relies. Is that too simplistic a reading? I don't know. I don't think that's simplistic or too simplistic at all. I think um, if you hear the Panthers describing what happened at the time um, with COINTELPRO, um, they would write letters to spouses from their spouse saying, confessing to cheating. Um, you know, these things are not just about gathering intelligence, as you say, it's also a form of psychological warfare um, in terms of breaking down people's capacities to build social relationships. But then I think there's also this other aspect, and you touch on something really important when you talk about the mistrust at the heart of capitalism. And I think central to that is um, the framing of or reimagining of the consequences of capitalism as innate characteristics of the human being. There are always just going to be some bad people. We're always going to act in our self-interest. And so we take the consequences of how people are forced to behave under capitalism or the logics that govern our behaviours under capitalism and treat them as if they're a natural consequence of it. And I think there's an element of how we pathologize crime that can provide a kind of um, framework or point of comparison here where we take the product of social breakdown, the product of poverty, products of um, oppression essentially and we treat them as a pathology of the individual actors who are marked out as perpetrators. Um, So I absolutely think that's important and I do think that's kind of at the heart of the abolitionist critique which is on the one hand yes abolish prisons but on the other hand We've got this whole thing wrong about why harm uh, why harm happens in our society, and I think that that yeah, really does get to the heart of it. Yeah, I think Annie's completely right, and the point about capitalism breeding mistrust is crucial. I think not just for creating um, folk devils, creating uh, uh, criminal people or criminal communities or uh, criminal ideas and actions, but also I think for breaking up other potential links of solidarity creating competition among workers rather than links of solidarity, creating competition between um, different uh, oppressed nations and oppressed groups of peoples rather than links of solidarity. So my next question is one that I don't expect us to be able to put to bed today because it's a question that the left has been grappling with forever, which is the idea of reform versus revolution. It is though a question that both B and Judah demand us to reflect on. Um, both of them having been brought up or, you know, politically matured in movements which were abolitionist or anti-state or anti-police in various ways, but who both have attempted to work with the police or through official channels to seek change. Um, You know, Judah seeking legal justice through a criminal and then civil trial after obviously working on the IAG to attempt to reform the police from within. Um, And then B, 
going through this inquiry, despite not necessarily being particularly optimistic about the prospects of it delivering justice. It reminds me a little bit of an article you wrote, Annie, for Navarro recently about the trial of Derek Chauvin, the murderer of George Floyd, and this idea that, you know, the state cannot hold its own to account and that, you know, attempts to do that are necessarily impossible because of the master's tools, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I mean, I kind of wonder whether it is possible to reform the police under a system of racial capitalism, patriarchy, um, and whether, as Mark Neoclia says, the demand for defund or for abolition is premature when these oppressive structures exist. I think that's the situation in Bristol uh, following the urban rebellions of 1980 and 1981, like other cities across the country, led to police reforms which sought to identify and reform or eradicate so-called bad apples within the police. The SCARM report said that there were potentially some discriminatory officers within the police force and that some training and some consultancy committees um, and potentially some kind of uh, better accountability for these individual officers should be implemented in order for police relations to be improved. But what I think is really crucial is what took place in the 1990s, because in the 1990s, we have the McPherson report, which claims to go one step further. The McPherson report claims to not identify bad apples, but instead identify institutional racism. But the definition that the McPherson report finds for, uses for institutional racism is actually not very different to the definition of racism used in the Scarman reports. So while the original definition of institutional racism, um, coined by uh, Stokely Carmichael and Charles Hamilton in their uh, 1967 book, Black Power, is um, that institutional racism is effectively colonialism because these institutions in the US and in the UK as well are what we might call colonially constituted. Right? So they arise in the context of colonialism in order to govern colonised populations. And I think we can say that about British institutions um, such as the police as much as we can say it about US ones. And so therefore, the in order to reproduce their power, they have to reach, reproduce forms of racial governance, reproduce forms of racism. And that's why, that is why the normal functioning of institutions produces racist outcomes. But what the McPherson inquiry says is something quite different. What McPherson inquiry says is that institutional racism is when um, stereotypes, discriminatory practices and thinking, um, a lack of care and foresight um, leads to people receiving a differential outcome from institutions based on race or ethnicity. So what does this definition of institutional racism do? It tells us that actually these institutions are not colonially constituted and therefore um, their normal functioning is to reproduce racism. Actually, what it tells us is that these institutions are objective neutral institutions for which we can pour either racist or discriminatory policies and practices and, um, and staff members, or we can instead um, uh, implement anti-racist policies, practices and staff members into this purportedly neutral institution. Um, and so all therefore was, was necessary was for you to join your local community consultancy committee to uh, implement some 
uh, lovely fashionable unconscious bias training um, and to ensure that there is a lovely diversity drive to ensure that uh, the police um, reflect quote unquote the communities that they quote unquote serve and what this does I think or what this did was it took the energy of all of these radical campaigners who were involved in the Stephen Lawrence campaign that forced the inquiry to open up to the idea of institutional racism, took all of that radical energy and channeled it into the same narrow states-led liberal forms of anti-racism, which, which had been rejected by radicals decades before. How does that happen, that radicals become neutralised by the state? Is it that they just become jaded or something more complicated? I think that many of the people who were involved in the Lawrence campaign did identify the failings and the limitations, as we might call it, of uh, the McPherson Inquiry's definition of institutional racism and thus the recommendations which followed from it. But because of the energy and work that had been invested into the Stephen Lawrence campaign, I think many felt compelled to follow through with seeing what could be made of um, the efforts that had been put into it. But I think what's also really crucial is that what Stephen Lawrence campaign and the, the McPherson inquiry also enabled was a much clearer demonstration of the failings of liberal anti-racism. So while the Black Lives Matter movement in the US emerges in this Obama movement where liberal anti where liberal anti-racism has done, has kind of triumphed right with its black head of state and its black attorney general yet still black people are being killed on the streets of the US. Here in Britain, we've had two decades since the McPherson inquiry, the diversity initiatives, the unconscious bias training, the police consultancy committees for two decades, and still very, very little has changed. And I think it's partly that failure of liberal anti-racism that has enabled a, a divergence of how it is that institutional racism is addressed. On the one hand, we have the right, which will publish things like the Sewell Report, which can say everything um, that we were told to do to eradicate institutional racism, we have done, and it's still there. What does that tell us? It tells us that black and brown people have deficit cultures. While on the other hand, we have the left, which says we've done everything um, the McPherson Inquiry has told us to do to address institutional racism. It hasn't worked. What does that tell us? It tells us we need to abolish. And I think it's, I think it's this retreat from the centre ground on both sides that, he, that has led us to what this current moment where we have an authoritarian, a strengthened authoritarian right on the one hand, which has incorporated uh, these recommendations from Lawrence with its very diverse um, cabinet and, um, and, and committees. And on the other hand, we have this, this resurgence of an abolitionist movement in which the main slogans of the, the, uh, the, the protests of the, in the summer of 2020 are the UK is not innocent and defund the police. One thing that became clear to me after the NSARS moment in Nigeria is that part and parcel of the ideology of policing is the belief that policing has existed throughout time as just the way that society deals with harm. But what you see is that as what you see is that as Adam says, the institutionalization of policing is an essential part of the colonial project. In Nigeria, the first institutionalized police force was uh, was built in Lagos to quell resistance. And then we see why reform is simply not enough because built into it is a set of logics about upholding peace 
but a peace without justice is the perfection of oppression, right? A peace without resist, uh, where there's injustice without resistance is just the perfection of the domination of a group of people. And what the state always seeks to do is find representatives of a set of politics that it can then co-opt and put into, you know, if we're talking about the IAG, um, it's getting leadership of the community. Again, it's a colonial strategy, right? You get the elites, you bring the elites on board and then you co-opt them slowly. And so I think the most vigilant place we have to be is in not allowing for that. And that was really kind of inspiring in the SARS movement. You know, that's how it kind of ended the way that it did with the massacre of people at the Lecky Tollgate, because the state consistently sought to find leadership of this movement. And the people on the street said, no, they don't represent us. We're not, we don't have leaders, we're a leaderless movement. And I think there is something about the way that we seem to be moving towards a horizontalism with all of its limitations and challenges, which kind of, I think, is a response to that attempt to create those internal hierarchies. The second thing that I would say is that when it comes to the juncture that we're in at the moment, I think we're not in a position of low consciousness, we're in a position of despondency, where the challenges feel insurmountable, right? And so the only avenues we have available to us, it seems like in the case that Adam was talking about with the McPherson report and like following through on the recommendations is the idea that, well, if we can only secure a conviction of a police officer who's done harm, then that could give us some semblance of justice. But the problem is the very capacity for the state, like in the case of Chauvin, the very capacity for the state to prosecute successfully a police officer is affirmation that the same system which caused him to kill George Floyd or murder George Floyd is affirmed, right? The idea of it being able to prosecute its own therefore gets taken as an understanding of it being a neutral, just institution. A comrade was talking to me about the vigil for Sarah Everard and she was saying, you know, that is a clear instance in which organisers forced a contradiction. What the police wanted to do on that day, if there hadn't been for the COVID restrictions, um, was be a presence at that vigil, but not cause any harm, right? So they could be presented as a community who care about the people, right? Especially about women who are viewed as particularly vulnerable in this time. But because the government was in the process of ramming through the crime and sentencing bill, and because COVID restrictions had been used disproportionately against Black protests, they were forced into the situation of either highlighting that disparity in the way they treat middle-class white women versus the way that they treat, and like obviously to be clear, the, the vigil was led by, by large working-class white and, um, and, and racialized women, right? But like in terms of the audience that expected, they expected to come, I mean, Kate Middleton went, right? And so they were either forced to highlight that disparity in the way that they treat people who they view as more valuable or less disposable versus how they treat black and brown people when we want to resist police violence or to behave towards those people in the same way as they behave towards black and brown people when we protest on the street for Black Lives Matter, right? And they took the latter option. Um, and as a consequence of that, the kind of inability of the institution to reform, the essential logic of the institution, which is about quelling resistance, gets exposed. And so I do think that we're at a juncture where the distinction between reform and or the kind of collapsing of revolution into reform or the view of reform as a step on the way to revolution or abolition is becoming increasingly untenable as this polarization that Adam speaks about happens. Um, 
But I do think, obviously, in terms of abolition, there are some kinds of non-reformist reforms that we can push for, right? I think a demand for defund, which is grounded in a political movement, which understands not simply defunding police, but also reinvesting and also defunding on a political logic of seeking to reduce police capacity as being a non-reformist reform, right? Let's talk a bit about violence and non-violence. So similar to what I said earlier, Judah and B both had early experiences, formative experiences of civil disobedience and indeed violent resistance to state power. Uh, but as they have grown older, the ways in which they've sought to challenge the state has been through nonviolent and indeed through kind of official means. And it's interesting actually to hear them both reflect, particularly Judah, on uh, some of the tactics that maybe they espoused or supported as younger people. The only regret I have about 1980 is when people started to loot. That was a major concern to me and um, um, some of my um, um, close friends, right? Because we don't mind burning the place. So we don't mind um, um, defending ourselves physically. But what we were totally against was stealing and looting is stealing. Right? So we didn't have, um, once looting starts, then um, people said the uprising escalated, but it did not because it would have gone a hell of a lot further than it should in terms of um, drawing attention to what suffering we were going through. I really felt a lot of that tension between different modes of resistance uh, when I went to Bristol recently to cover the Kill the Bill protests, where, you know, attendees and participants were sort of torn between wanting to violently confront the police and others who kind of tried to distance themselves quite forcefully from that violence and insist that they were peaceful protesters. Here's a little clip of what I heard at one of the protests. There will be police vans. I think there will be police horses. I think there will be police dogs. I think there will be a threat to you. Obviously, this is something that you raise in your book, Adam, Black Resistance to British Policing, this idea that there are some forms of struggle which are legitimate and others which are illegitimate, and the state really attempts to distinguish between these two things. How do we grapple with that problem? And I guess, how have we grappled with that problem in the past as activists? So I think that the first thing is that I, I think it's really crucial that we don't try too much to create a separation between activists who engage in what we might call legal campaigns um, and activists that do kind of grassroots direct action. Because I think historically, both in Britain and across its colonies and former colonies, we can see histories of many activist groups and individuals doing both of those things. Maybe one of the most famous would be the Mangrove Nine Trial where people involved in Britain's Black, Pan Black Power movements were involved in not simply direct confrontation of the police and militant uh, forms of activism in, grass in the grassroots, but also used the legal system to better expose the 
uh, racism and, and injustices of the British um, criminal justice system to better um, to be provided with a platform to articulate in very material and um, vivid ways the different processes of state power, racism and discrimination that speak to, I think, the material realities of working class black people in particular, but I think working class people more generally um, in this country, but also how they can utilise um, certain aspects of these um, processes to to bring about um, a high level of consciousness and understanding. More recently, I think we can also again see a relationship between these two types of uh, resistance. And I think the 2011 rebellions following the police killing of Mark Duncan is a really important example of this as well. Because while a lot of people, um, including those on the left, didn't consider those rebellions to be political, despite the fact that they were, in, of course, in response to um, a police killing, what we saw around these rebellions was undoubtedly political. So we see big community action in 2011 in the lead up to the police killing of Mark Duggan in response to the police killing of a reggae artist called Smiley Culture, um, as well as the police killing of a man called Kingsley Burrell um, in Birmingham. We also, of course, see a community protest right before um, the rebellions arise um, in Tottenham in North London. And we also, of course, see a huge amount of community organising taking place after the rebellions with police action lawyers and other campaign groups trying to use the court system or trying to, I guess, resisting the court system from within uh, by trying to prevent young people from uh, trying to give guilty pleas and preventing them as much as they can from getting custodial sentences um, in this particular moment, as well as trying to help people to uh, resist um, raids on their homes and gather evidence and all of these different types of things. I think it's really crucial for us to um, think through these different forms of resistance together and the way in which um, being pragmatic in these movements of resistance is um, something that has been historically, um, has a hist important historical precedent and, and I think can, we can learn from. So the Spy Cops inquiry has been ongoing for a few years now, since about 2019, and it's regularly in the media, but hasn't sparked anywhere near the kind of public outrage that, say, the murder of George Floyd did. Um, and I'm interested in why that is, why it hasn't captured the public imagination or attracted the kind of media attention that other events have, why it's gone relatively under the radar. Is it because their targets were seen as kind of activists and therefore somehow had it coming? Is it because they were women? Is it because the violence was kind of hidden or seemingly nonviolent? I'm struggling to kind of explain that disparity, I suppose. I think that the killing of George Floyd was the most public lynching in human history. And I think that the fact that we watched George Floyd being tortured to death effectively is one of the things that made um, that particular uh, instance of police murder uh, such a, a galvanising force for the movement that arose subsequently. But I think the other issue is that things that lead to public anger are often things I, that can be more relatable. Um, and so, for instance, there appears to have been more public anger from the expenses, MPs' expenses scandal than there has been in relation to uh, the, the use of uh, privatisation and subcontracted out uh, services um, from, for uh, masks and other um, 
products required um, to support uh, healthcare professionals and other people during the pandemic. And I think part of that is kind of relatable, right? Because a lot of people have had to claim expenses before um, for a taxi or for their lunch or any or, or something like that. And they can they can you can see in a in a far more relatable way how this corruption manifests itself. Whereas contracts and businesses and subcontractors and all of these things aren't really issues that people um, uh, kind of come into contact with in, on, in their day-to-day lives. But I think the other thing is also, um, I think partly also linked to some, the other thing that you mentioned, the fact that a lot of the, the what's being done here um, has been um, directed towards activists. And I think people who are identified as activists, I think, are therefore considered to be apart from the general public, right? Activists are these people that exist in this section of society over here, away from the general public who aren't activists. They're just quote unquote normal people. And I think this has also perhaps enabled a um, uh, th- th- what's happened, the, the spy cops kind of scandal to be framed as an aberration. This is something the police do to these specific people. It's not something they do to the general public, which I think is also perhaps in a better enabled um, uh, the police and to keep a lid on it in terms of in relation to a, a wider and more general public outrage. There's a sense in which George Floyd is a victim in our eyes because he's not someone who's resisting. He's an innocent party who's being murdered by the state, whereas the activist is somebody who's asking for trouble, um, somebody who's therefore deserving of the violence. It's a confrontation. It's a conflict in that regard, right? When it's a victim, it's oppression. When it's somebody who's resisting, then it's conflict. Um, I think the other side of it is also thinking about what gets media airtime. Um, And there's a dialectical relationship here. Um, NSAR starts in Nigeria, doesn't really get that much traction. There have been protests against SARS for ages in Nigeria. Every year, essentially, for the three years prior, the government had claimed that SARS had been abolished but it was forced into the political imaginary through social media. Um, And because it was trending so much, all of a sudden Al Jazeera and and BBC, like all of these um, media outlets are looking for people to talk about it. The people who are invested in, who understand, who have connections with people who are affected by spy cops don't have the kind of platforms that, you know, major figures like Al Sharpton, et cetera, can command in the US and therefore force it into the public imaginary. So I do think that that's an aspect an aspect of it, thinking about the political economy of news cycles and how um, that drives where our attention is focused and where it isn't. So it's hard to deny that the recent abolitionist revival we're seeing in Britain has been triggered by events in the US. Obviously, the death of George Floyd being a massive uh, example of that and the catalyst for abolitionist movements all around the world. But um, I'm interested in whether that creates potential pitfalls for our movement, particularly given the difference between the kind of policing context in the US and in the UK. Um, Obviously, the Kill the Bill movement is much more homegrown and directed towards a a British parliamentary process, a bill that's passing through the the Houses of Parliament. And maybe there's something good about that. But do you feel like America over-determines our political movements? And if so, what are the consequences of that? And maybe how do we circumvent that? I think we live in an age of false internationalisms where people think that um, speaking in the language of other contexts 
um, reflects the internationalism of politics. Um, but actually our politics remains deeply parochial and what we end up in a situation of doing is misidentifying the conditions that we face. Um, I can't remember where I wrote about this, but there was um, an interview with uh, George the Poet and Emily Maitlis where just after the murder of George Floyd and she says to him, you know, but the UK is different, you know, it's not as bad here, basically is her implication. And his kind of key response to that is to speak of instances in which people have been murdered by the state here also. But there are contours of the British context which aren't encapsulated by this language. The reality is our police aren't armed. But what does that mean? It means that when people are murdered by the police is actually oftentimes a far more intimate physical act, right? Um, you know, in, 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 uh, in, in Wales, just at the beginning of the year, someone was beaten to death by the police, right? To be beaten to death is a slower, more torturous process than being shot, right? And I think that um, we shouldn't be shying away from some of those distinctions, but I think there's another element to it as well. I think the bordering that we talked about earlier of policing within the frame of traditionally recognized police forces ignores the privatized violence that we're seeing at the border in the UK, where we're actually seeing a lot more of this kind of institutionalized violence that people are facing. If you think about, I believe it's Jimmy Mabenga, who's like murdered on a deportation flight, right? Like we've, we've, um, we narrow our view to such an extent that we see the question of police violence, the question of BLM as being rooted or grounded within the national frame as violence of the state against our it, the state's own citizens, rather than the routine violence of the state against non-citizens as well. And so we're in this bizarre position where because of the framing or the language of BLM being imported to UK in a way that affirms the exceptionalism of the national or the violence against the citizen, where people go about saying things like support for the EU is an anti-racist position um, and like unironically fly the EU flag whilst claiming themselves to be anti-racist. One part of the importation of this Americanism is an inability to deal with the different history of migration that Britain has. Um, and so we're now talking in a language of violence faced exceptionally by black people when actually most of the data that we have that we use on murders in police custody are murders of people of what might be termed BAME at risk of infuriating everybody <laughs> online people, right? Um, and so the reality is the experiences which produced political blackness in the UK context um, are indicative of some ways in which we diverge from the American context. Our working class communities are multiracial, multi-ethnic. Um, and so a lot more so in the UK context, we need to be emphasizing the class dynamics of police violence. And we don't do that, um, I think, to our detriment. And so when we're thinking about an abolitionist frame, I think we also necessarily have to be thinking about how we incorporate a radical politic of anti-race or being anti-race. When we want to articulate a radical horizon in the UK, we're not just drawing on a continuous experience of Black people in the UK. Like we have a, a relatively short history, most people who are third, fourth, fifth generation migrants in the British context. We don't have... Um, the longer lasting tradition of what people today call like ADOS people in America, right? 
And so our patterns of resistance are likely to be different, but we're also bringing with us a memory and a tradition of anti-colonial resistance um, in this context as well, which involves coalition building, which involves having a radical analysis of race itself rather than racism as an affect, which involves resisting the attempts of the state to enforce like ethnic division on us as a naturalized form. I was horrified essentially to see some of the responses to UK BLM. They're so concerned about the language of Black and minority ethnic or the language of POC as erasing some Black distinctness um, that we lose kind of sight of the broader picture. And I think this is an effective project, a, a product of the government's def- like divide and rule strategy. You know, we talked a bit about like the co-optation of different people. There's a whole political economy that comes around that of the race relations industry where it is absolutely about affirming that difference as natural and essential and saying these are all different and separate communities. But we who grew up in working class communities in the UK absolutely know that's not the case. You know, we, we went to schools together, we shared these experiences together, right? And so how do we build? Because um, I think we have more effective building blocks for internationalism. We bring all of these national cultures and identities together. And that's not an argument for multiculturalism. It's to say that we have a better understanding of all of these different contexts in a way that makes it untenable for Britain to be exceptionalized. You know, when NSARS happened, we found out that the British state was funding and providing resources and training to the SARS operative unit, right? And so all of these connections of empire ought to upend how we foreground race as the primary and only dynamic of of domination in the UK. I think I want to agree with Annie on a couple of points. well, many of her points, but I'm going to specifically agree with Annie on um, maybe a, just a few of her points. The first, I think, is this: I think it's really crucial to appreciate how long Britain has attempted to undermine um, black struggle in Britain um, as simply a group of black provocateurs attempting to ineffectively transpose the U.S. context to the U.K. context. I think the other thing that's um, really useful um, to think through is is the other point that Annie made about the strength of um, Black Britain um, and the difference, the way in which Black Britain is very, very different to uh, the Black uh, uh, communities in the United States in as far as Black Britain having these international connections and being connected to each other, not through um, a very similar shared history or language as the vast majority of uh, Black people in the United States, but being connected through very different experiences of empire and very different anti-colonial movements and struggles as well. And I think this potential for creating a very different but hugely international Black movement, I think, is one of the things that made, I think, the Black Power movement in Britain in the 1960s and 70s so interesting and so inspiring for um, our our particular generation, because while they adopted the language of Black Power, which came from the United States, they came from an anti-colonial and anti-imperialist tradition rooted in uh, uh, colonial and post-colonial nations like Trinidad and Grenada. And I think learning from that international viewpoint whilst engaging in very localised struggles, is a, ve- is, a, is a really crucial um, lesson, I think, because what's happening for a lot of um, more kind of mm, popular 
black discourses, unfortunately, in Britain, is a a very lack of a lack of engagement, with, which is what which, which is with what's happening in the local. Whilst, as Annie mentioned, attempting to create the impression that what's happening in the, to the US must be happening in Britain because we are black and they are black, which I think feeds into these. Um, and uh, the same kind of the very same kind of narratives um, that are used by establishment journalists and politicians seeking to discredit black movements in Britain today. So my final question, I guess, is about the Overton window or maybe something closer to what Adam was saying about this left pole, um, the kinds of ideas that it's possible to articulate now, thanks to the Kill the Bill movement, thanks to BLM, that it wasn't possible to articulate even two years you know or more ago um so i'd like us to think about what kind of ideas about the police and policing have opened up for us in this moment have been mainstreamed and the kinds of opportunities that that creates for activists and abolitionists in particular i think that the movements of 2020 for the first time really mainstreamed um the language around defunding the police or police and, and abolition. And I think for me, that really came to a head when BBC journalists were asking the leader of the opposition, do you um, support defunding the police? And I think what's really fantastic about what's happened in 2021 is that while one approach to um, the vigil in relation to Sarah, Sarah Everard and following that, the kill the bill, um, protests could have seen 2020 as the year of black politics, 2021 as the year of feminist politics and then civil liberties. We've instead seen both of these years as the years of abolitionism. It's difficult not to be inspired by such a powerful coalition like the Pill, Kill the Bill Coalition. I don't think in our lifetimes we've ever seen a coalition of militant anti-racist activists, militant feminist groups, trade unions, um, Gypsy Roma traveller organisations, um, all um, um, migrant solidarity groups, all of these different um, organisations campaigning against uh, the gang's matrix or campaigning against school exclusions or campaigning against preventing the war on terror. All of these groups are part of this coalition and they are articulating a politics of abolitionism. And I think being able to snowball this militant politics into a mass movement like this country hasn't seen for decades, I think demonstrate that, that this authoritarian government is going to have quite a fight on its hands. I remember going to a rally online that Sisters Uncut had held with a number of other groups around the Kill the Bill um, coalition. Um, and one of the speakers said the mistake that the government made is that they attacked every one of our groups at the same time. There's something about this moment where people are ready to fight and it's remarkable to see. One thing that's especially remarkable about it is that it comes not long after the crushing 2019 election defeat. I think Corbyn for many people represented a return of politics where we'd been pushed into a language of culturalism. And who would have thought that just months after that election defeat, the one thing that many on the Labour right said nobody cared about was going to bring the most people onto British streets in history, which is race. Um, and so now we're at a juncture where all of the things that we thought went away with Corbyn's leadership, because we were all trapped into that thought process of Labourism, are 
remaining and resilient in the context of our resistance to this government, right? You have first the Black Lives Matter demonstrations last year. You have the consolidation around the Kill the Bill demonstrations. And now you're seeing a massive upsurge compared to what people were expecting in terms of Palestine solidarity demonstrations. And so what that tells us is that people don't need the Labour Party to be political. People don't need the ballot to be political. And they're understanding that. Um, And I think that's something we really have to hold and grow and nurture um, as people who are committed to a radical politics. And I think that really gives me hope for the horizon in terms of our resistance, which may have to be a long resistance to this conservative government. I think what people, what we've got an opportunity to do is prove that electoralism isn't the only way to get the goods. And I really do stand by and believe in um, something that Comrade had said from sisters, which is the only route we have now is to make this repression, this bill ungovernable for the government. And I think there's a political will to do that. And that's really exciting. After we talked, I thought about what Judah would make of Adam's idea about the co-optation of radicals, whether Judah would say he was chewed up and spat out by the state, or that he made the compromises necessary to effect change. It struck me, though, that the IAG wasn't able to implement the kind of compromises or non-reformist reforms, as Annie put it, that might provide meaningful waypoints en route to abolition. Rather, as Judas slowly realised, the IAG was a thinly veiled PR exercise by the police. I thought also about Annie's idea of communal elites, about Cleo Lake, the black Bristolian who managed the Justice for Judah campaign and who recently stood as the Greens candidate for police and crime commissioner for the West of England, about Bristol's black mayor, Marvin Rees, who condemned protesters' violence and defended the police's. I thought about something Annie said. It's so easy to speak of nonviolence when you're not the community who's experiencing that harm directly, right? My conversation with Annie and Adam, of course, also got me thinking about B and what she would have made of Annie's assertion that the police cannot prosecute their own, and that even when they do, it is only to affirm their own status as a supposedly neutral institution. I guess B's decision to emigrate to Ireland to escape what she called the British police state suggests that she shares Annie's belief in the impossibility of police reform. Though she did seem to circle back to this idea of good cops when talking about the guard eye in Ireland. We decided between us we couldn't live in the UK anymore and we've moved to Ireland, which feels very different and does indeed have a very different history in terms of, um, you know, the police were there to, in a way, to defend the revolution rather than uh, the establishment um, and and the status quo. What I really thought about as I spoke to Adam and Annie, though, was how hard it is to escape the police state of mind our collective attachment to the carceral institutions that shape our lives. How difficult it seems, even on the left, to imagine a world not just without policing, but without the need for police. I think it's what makes the Kill the Bill movement so exciting. The way it's convened a coalition that together represents this vast leftist hive mind, that is collectively rethinking how we run our schools and our borders, how we care for our elderly and centre our marginalised. 
It makes me think that a police-free world isn't quite as far off as Mark Neoclius thinks. In fact, I wonder whether Mark's appeal to realism is a symptom of the misanthropy Annie talked about, this belief that capitalism sells us that people can't change, or at least not easily. If what Adam says is true, if the essential ingredient in progressive movements is trust, then the project of abolition requires us not only to perfect our society, but also to believe the people in it are already fundamentally good. I have a lot of people to thank for this episode. B and Police Spies Out of Lives, the organisation who put me in touch with her, and who've just produced a satirical training guide for undercover cops, if you want to check it out. It's at spycopstraining.co.uk. Judah Adumbi, of course, and the many people I spoke to for that Bristol report, including Roger Ball, Rodai, Ros Martin, Cleo Lake, Aidan Harris, and Alana Viram. My producer, Chal Ravens, and Navara FM host, James Butler, who I'm so pleased approached me with this idea. We return to our regularly scheduled programming next week. In the meantime, check out James's interview with Mark Neoclius, as well as our colleague Aaron's recent interview with Tom Fowler, the host of the Spy Cops Info podcast, on this week's Downstream. Until next time, stay safe. <laughs>